You are listening to Spacetime Mind. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. I decided to eat only half of the acid at first, but I spilled the rest on the sleeve of my red woolen shirt. What's the trouble? Well, all this white stuff on my sleeve is LSD. Somehow, somehow, do a Jedi mind meld. In space! Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Space Time Mind. This is Pete Mandic, and I'm once again joined by Richard Brown. It's me. Woo! Um, only now he's the one uh, who's handsome, and I'm the, the crazy-looking guy with a beard. So we sound different. Yeah. <laughs> So um, let me tell you what I've been thinking a lot about the past couple of days. Okay. Google inceptionism. Have you uh-huh. seen this? Have yeah. you seen this blog post? I have. I did see it. Yeah. The uh-huh. Google research blogs. And um, I know about, I guess, I first saw it on Alex Kiefer's Facebook page. And he's uh-huh. a real network guy. But now I've been seeing it all over the place. And every time I see it, just it blows my mind. Yeah. Why does it blow your mind? See, what I'm trying to figure out is why it blows everyone's mind. So I think it's kind of cool, but why is it like so mind-blowing? Well, um, so just to explain it real quick, uh, no. they, the Google researchers have taken these feed-forward connectionist networks of like, I don't know, 10 to 30 layers. Yeah. And they trained them up uh, to recognize images. So they're recognizing like pictures of bananas as bananas, pictures of dumbbells as dumbbells. And then they do this thing that they call turning it upside down. Yeah. So they will present the network with pretty much noise. It's not exactly noise. It's statistically diff- slightly different from noise, but it's still pretty much noise. Yeah. Um, and then they will decide they want to figure out what, what changes they would have to make to this noisy image to get the network to say that is definitely a banana. Right. So they, they, keep, they show it the image, and then depending on how close to getting the banana response is, they'll tweak it some more. I don't know the exact mathematical procedure, but they come up with this thing that when you look at it, it's banana-like, but it's also like tripping balls while looking at a banana. Right. Um, and then there are more complicated <laughs> versions of this where they will they will show it some image, like an image of a, an antelope, and then they will see what its first interpretation is of that image, or they'll right. maybe show it some clouds, and they'll see if it if it comes up with any interpretation of that. And then based on that interpretation, they will then tweak the image again. Yeah. In that I, know, I saw one where it found like a moose. A moose lion or something. It had some like an octopus cat. I mean, it had some weird. Oh yeah. If so you the, look closely, it was the one I saw <laughs> initially, what it it it, it, it must have started off with was a, a squirrel on um, a wooden banister. Yeah. But then what it came up with was this like melted squirrel that had three heads, one of which was <laughs> yeah. a dog head, and all the wood grain in the banister had morphed into these super psychedelic swirly patterns some of which yeah. have like resolved into eyeballs there were like a shit ton of eyeballs all over the place little <laughs> faces and little pagodas and 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 yeah. carriages and stuff like that and not that i would know anything about psychedelic drugs but everybody who's uh-huh. ever been on psychedelic drugs and has looked at these images has said has said wow that really that's what it's like uh-huh and so that's that's interesting to me because I've spent a lot of time thinking about like, well, what the hell is going on in the brain? But wait a minute. So come on now. I have. Uh, I have thought about it. But 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 I, I don't know about that. But <laughs> <laughs> um, so why is this any more interesting than a um, you know kaleidoscope or uh, you know what were those old um, spirograph yeah. things? So suppose you had a spi- a machine that did a spiralograph, and then it yeah. uh, 
it did some trippy shit. That's not that interesting, is it? Well, it's not simply trippy shit, but it's trippy shit to a picture of a squirrel. So I like I've looked at squirrels before and then yeah. saw them become psychedelic. And uh, as an artist, I've thought a lot about like, well, what's going on there? And what would you have to do to draw a picture that looked like that? And I don't okay. mean just like, you know, copy some psychedelic thing, but like to think about some kind of like general principles mm-hmm. as an artist. Like, so if I said, okay, start with just a photograph of a um, squirrel and now make it more psychedelic. Well, one thing you might do is like give it rainbow colors, but that doesn't quite capture it. Another thing you right. might do is just superimpose a bunch of spirals on top of it. And that doesn't quite capture it either. Yeah. And uh, there's some, that's not what Google's, I mean, you don't, I mean, what's the claim? Are you claiming that something like Google's trying to produce a psychedelic image that this neural well, network is Google doing? Is, Google is making claims that uh, I don't know if I buy. Yeah, Google is claiming that this is helping understand what the network learns. Uh-huh. I'm not sure what the heck that means. Well, um, we that, already know from a behavioristic point of view, we know that it learns how to sort bananas from non-bananas. But uh, well, do you learn about what its criterion, where where it sort of figures out when when things aren't or aren't bananas if it mixes? I guess I that's know. what they're trying to get. But I was, I mean, yeah, I, I don't see I'm that trying to get so mind blowing about this. Yeah, it produces cool images, and it's kind of cool. But what what's so? Well, it's not the, just cool. The computer is. I mean, all the headlines about dr- electric sheep and dreaming and crap. I mean, that's just total bullshit. This is nothing like dreaming. It's not like the net is having some psychedelic experience. It's just a pattern recognizer being applied to an ambiguous stimuli and coming up with weird ambiguous patterns. What's so? I mean. Well, I think that as a uh, for us to look at, but I hope that no one is saying that the computer is having those experiences. That sounds crazy. But so suppose someone came up with an equation and they plugged it into a music generator, and then when they they played the resulting tunes to people, uh, they all agreed that sounds like Bach. Yeah. And and then there's a, a a variable that they change, like one single number. They change that variable from a from a seven to a, a nine, and people say now it sounds more like Mozart. And then they change the variable from a 9 to 11. They say, it sounds even more like Mozart. Uh-huh. That would be cool. Now, um, It would be cool, but it wouldn't be mind-blowing. You're granting that it's, well... I mean, the point was that everything... very cool. It wouldn't but, be that cool, I guess. Is I think you could already basically do that with, not with an equation, but a complicated algorithm, I mean. Well, one thing that you might wonder about, and this is one thing I'm interested in, is what, what are those visual hallucinations when, when someone is having... Uh, the, the typical kind of, of visual hallucinations that you would associate with LSD or, or psilocybin. What's yeah. going on there? Like, is that something happening in the retina? Is it happening in the cortex? Right. You might say that it, you, you might, you know, phrase questions in terms of things that are strictly feed forward versus top down. Is it simply grappling with noise and trying to impose an interpretation on that? Uh-huh. Uh, in what ways are the top level interpretations feeding back into something lower level, which is itself feeding up? Yeah. And you might say that, well, maybe we kind of already knew that something like that was happening. It's, not, it's neat to have a, a proof of concept. It's neat to have a machine that someone has built, and then the images that it, that it makes like captures phenomenologically what, it, what it's like to have those experiences. So I, that's the thing that, to me, is cool. But it's cool more from the point of view of an artist, uh, thinking it, in terms of general principles, what it would take to make those images. I mean, um, so that's, yeah, I mean... That's a strange claim. Is there is the claim really that I mean? So I, I see. I there's a bunch of different questions. I guess you could be asking. So one one kind of question is a modeling question. So if these neural nets really model the way visual processes are may in fact work, then it may be interesting to see how they behave in these kinds of situations, and then extrapolate from that backs and say, oh, possibly what's going on in the brain is something similar when we hallucinate. That's the claim. That the claim that's being made here? Well, there's a couple of claims. One is a claim that Pete Mandic is making, and the other uh-huh. is the claim that the Google researchers are making. Well, which, which one's Pete making? Uh, Pete is making one about psychedelic drugs. Uh-huh. That this reveals something about how visual hallucinations arise. The Google researchers... I mean, look, but it's... So suppose... I mean, I'm not saying I disagree, but I'm just saying I find that a strange thing to, to say at the, at the beginning. So suppose you're watching your television and then something... I don't know enough about how electronic stuff works to make the, a convincing example, but suppose they, the image goes blurry or something like that and becomes, in a sense, kind of wavy around the edges. And you say, oh, yeah, I remember hearing people talk about taking LSD and things get wavy around the edges. And so that's what it's like to have an LSD trip. So now, 
study the television and the way the image is produced on the screen and that'll tell us something about the way experiences are produced. That's, I mean, that seems to me sort of similar to the kind of claim you're making about the uh, experiences and the networks, although well, maybe I'm missing yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's the general form of it. Um, yeah, but that seems like a weird thing to say that that that's shows us something about how hallucinations are produced. Uh, it is it is potentially problematic in a couple different ways. Yeah. Um, let me let me try a different analogy on you. So suppose someone came up with a theory about uh -huh. um, dreams, like how how are dreams made, and they said something like, "Well, basically, you're just remember you're taking memories of chunks." Mm -hmm. And then you're you're arranging those chunks randomly, and then like playing them back. And so someone says, "Okay, well let's let's take that theory and try to implement it in the following way: We take random snippets of YouTube videos, each yeah. of which, and the, and the the snippets are you know no longer than thirty seconds and no shorter than one." Well, this second. is that other weird thing about the uh, images produced by the computer from the videos. Uh, no, this is something. I mean, no, I'm, I had something else in mind. Okay. Uh, and suppose suppose we we show people these uh, the resultant videos and ask them, is this what your dreams are like? And uh, ninety percent of the people say no, no. Um, that's not really what what dreams are like. Mm -hmm. uh, and then someone else comes forward and says, you know what dreams are really like? David Lynch movies, or at least chunks of David Lynch movies. David Lynch has a talent, and maybe people, lots of people disagree with me about this. But I think of uh, uh, various people in film that have tried to portray dreams mm -hmm. and in um, like drawings and paintings. There's a comic artist, Jim Woodring, that I really like. I think he, he gets close to this too. There's a logic to dreams that these two artists capture. And mm -hmm. if you've seen just random stuff or if you've seen art students employ the cut-up technique and just kind of make random uh, images or random films, you really get the sense of like, okay, the, the, ra the random hypothesis is a bad hypothesis. Yeah, there is some kind of logic or structure to dreams, and, and at least on an intuitive level, David Lynch knows what it is. Maybe he wouldn't be able to articulate it and tell us what his method is. I see the Google stuff as kind of being like uh, automatic David Lynch. Uh huh. Okay, so it seems like on what you might call an intuitive level, it has a grasp of, of what's going on because it's it's producing result that at least some people would say like, yeah, that's what it's like. That's more similar. Than just you know random stuff that's more similar to uh, dreams or psychedelic hallucinations than mere kaleidoscope or mere uh, spirograph. Uh -huh. um, but now, can can we use these neural networks to make explicit some kind of general principles to come up with a theory of what's actually going on? I, I think you're right to say, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Yeah, wait a minute. Or to say the other thing that these are dreams that had by. The program, or something like that, or hallucinations being had by the program. Yeah, I mean that's. I, I would say that's all. I mean, but that's sort of what a lot of people seem to be taking from this. Well, there's a there's a very clear sense in which we. I mean, we could talk about seeing and visual discrimination. Uh -huh. um, there's a pretty clear sense in which, like, yeah, robots can see and robots can perform visual discriminations. Yeah, based on what you hold in front of their cameras, based only on electromagnetic radiation going into their uh, bodies. They can uh -huh. uh, sort objects into into uh, piles, which are the banana pile and the not banana pile. Right. But of course, there's like a really good question about like whether what's going on in inside of them is uh, significantly similar to what's going on inside of us. And it is very <laughs> bizarre. Uh, is that a, you think that's a question? <laughs> it's very bizarre. I'm with you, know, I think you and I would agree on this. It's very bizarre for the Google researchers to even claim like they now know how the the robot works, or they know, for example, what what the robot has learned, or they even know like what the well, robot. Why is that weird? Representations I, claims are. about learning, I don't think, are as uh, far fetched as claims about its visual experience and you, uh, like it, having dreams and stuff. You you lost me uh, right at the end. I was saying something about representations. So there's. If we state the claim in terms of mere behavior, mm -hmm. uh, it, I think it's it's totally okay to say they've learned the behavior. If if, yeah. if, if you're just talking about the behavior of sorting bananas and non-bananas, then yes, they have learned how to sort bananas. But if we're but sometimes we talk about learning in terms of like internal states or internal representations. Right. Uh, you might say they have a representation of features. Like they are representing elements of the color and shape of the image, and, and that's how they're doing it. 
now that's super like whoa 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 i say slow down there like yeah, but Google didn't say that. I mean, that's not what the what they said was that they were getting some handle on the way it was uh, performing, the way it learns. Well, they do say things like so they've got like a ten or t uh, thirty layer network, and they're saying it at lower layers, it's representing things like edges and shapes, and uh -huh. at, high, at, at higher la layers, it's maybe I'm putting words in their mouth now, but I think that that they're attributing something like psychological content to the different states at the at the network. So that when you get to the highest levels, it is representing things as bananas, and that's super controversial. But uh -huh. even with the lower levels, that it's representing things as you think representing bananas, bananas is a psychological state. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, isn't that something you do? Is represent bananas? Yeah, but so do pictures of bananas, and they aren't psychological states. I mean, you can have if represent you can. Ha I mean, I don't see what the claim about a psychological state is. Or yeah, there's something that's semantically valuable. Maybe it um, has content and. But I'm not sure why we say psychological. Well, forget psychological for now. But like, let's even take the question of whether it's representing edges. Uh -huh. do, you know, do you know about this uh, really famous paper by Patricia Churchland and T Terence Sidnowski about shape, shape from shading networks? It's uh, I, I I don't know the name of it, but I I haven't read it in thousands is, of years. But it's not you, the critique of pure vision. No, that's a different. Uh, no, I think it might be. Uh, or a little bit earlier than that, but what it's supposed to be a critique of is the hind and held uh, stuff. So hind and held interpret the cells in cat V1 yeah. as edge detectors. Right, right, right. I think this is they got a Nobel Prize for this work, hind uh, and held. <laughs> uh -huh. um, they so they you know they had an electrode in some uh, cat's cortex and they were presenting it with the stimuli on a uh, overhead projector, they're trying to get something that, that this particular cell really, really liked. And just uh -huh. kind of as an accident, the cell went off, started going off whenever they took the transparencies off the projector. And they, they're like, whoa, that, what, what did it just see? What is it uh, responding to? And it turned out that they, it was something about a contrast edge, like a dark edge against a, a light background. Right. And, and further, it had a favorite orientation. And so this launched a whole research program in which they would find cells that had preferred orientations and they would call these things edge detectors and the hypothesis of Hein and Held's, and I guess a lot of other people went along with this, is that V1 had these separate units that were representing separate elements of an image that somehow got integrated uh, higher up. But they, now they're, you know, who cares about psychological or subpersonal, they're attributing a, a, a content to this, uh, or a function to this a a state of activation in a in a neuron or a set of neurons, and they're saying it's representing edges. It has the function of representing edges. Yeah, it's not a mere epiphenomenon in the scientific, non-philosophical sense of epiphenomenon. It's not a mere side effect of the way this thing really functions. That it's maximally responsive to edges of a certain orientation. It's supposed to be re responsive to edges in that orientation. Yeah. Uh, to help define what you would think of as the edge in a picture. Well, the Churchland and Sinovsky uh, Shape from Shading Networks claim that any network, uh, basically, if, that you can train to make judgments about three-dimensional shape based on shading input is, as a consequence, going to get these neurons that have these uh, preferences. Mm -hmm. And it was part of their conclusion, and I'm not super clear on the argument, it was part of the, their conclusion that it's baseless then to say that those things are edge detectors. That right. Things are representing edges. There's some sense in which they happen to be carrying information about edges. Uh -huh. If you were looking in there, you could figure out whether an edge was being presented. But it's not the job or function of that part of the network to detect edges. It just turns out that way as a consequence of training it up to be able to extract shape from shading. Right. And I think it was it was simply trying to make judgments about whether something was convex or concave, and it had there was nothing about the training regimen or what they were rewarding them on that had to do with like what you would think of as edges, yeah, like uh, contours yeah. or uh, boundaries. It was all, I mean, but there's always going to be there's there's always multiple systems that gonna are that this is going to be true for. I mean, uh, sorry, I don't know what the right way to put that. There's it's always going to be the case that there are going to be alternative models of what's going on there that assign different contents to the states. You can always divide it up in different ways. You, you have to narrow it down by, empir I mean, this is an empirical, empirical hypothesis about which one the brain is using. Um, so maybe if the, if the issue is, yeah, you shouldn't just infer from the fact that this thing responds to edges to the claim that it's representing edges, 
that's a good point, but it's, right. it's certainly a possibility. <laughs> it's something you oh, want yeah, to test sure. for and look at. Um, yeah. It's not as though, uh, you know, this other system that Churchland and whoever are talking about rules out that these things represent edges. Um, the question is, what is the brain doing? What kind of contents should we assign it in the overall best theory of its function? And right, of course, right now, uh, a lot of the debates that are going on are going to hopefully ultimately look really ridiculous. You know, right. akin, akin to people talking about the role of bile and, and so forth and so on. In the but, I mean, but you agree with me that the churchland Shinovsky thing shows that Hein and Held are being ha hasty if they're calling these things edge detectors or if they're saying this is representing edges. Well, if they're saying it based only on the fact that the things respond in that way to edges, then yeah. Okay. So now back to the Google guys. They were saying things like, okay, this shows us what the network learned yes and i that's a perfect one way of reading that it's perfectly true that it showed us what the network learned because learning is connected to behavior and okay uh, yeah but i read i mean if you look I at the way psychologists that. define learning it's simply um a modification in behavior over that it persists over time that, so, that well that's the behaviorist point that i already conceded but what if it was a claim about representations right right Okay, so we don't disagree about anything. No, I, well, no, I didn't think. I, what I started out saying was I don't see why this is so mind-blowing. I mean, I think it's interesting and cool. I don't think it's mind-blowing. I don't think we've learned anything all that exciting. I think it's kind of cool to see what the system does and when you give it these ambiguous stimuli. And I think you can make some limited inferences about what's going on in the system. Uh, I don't think you should go, oh, now we know how it represents stuff, but I mean, in the connectionist, or just kind of let people say this all the time. Um, this is kind of, in my opinion, this is one of the things that uh, the early connectionist stuff was uh, really guilty of, was just assigning contents to the nodes will willy-nilly and however they, however they wanted to, um, however it worked out best for them, saying, oh, well, this node is tree and this node is whatever. I mean, so you could, and then saying, uh, talking about what the system had encoded as a result of, having these things weighted in certain ways. Um, and I think what's happening now is that people are just letting the system learn for itself without, and I, that's been really an advance in my opinion, is they're just letting the systems work without trying to impose content on them, just uh, exposing them to stimuli and seeing yeah. what kind of results that you get. But so, no, here's and, sorry, so I was gonna say in large part, uh, wondering about the internal mechanisms. I mean, it's kind of, I hate to sidetrack this, but it's kind of like a point that Quine made a long time ago that, what matters is the behavior of the thing, and the internal stuff doesn't really matter. That's, in, in a, you know, the analogy that Quine used with the, uh, <clears throat> with the trimming of the bushes or whatnot. You right. can trim two sh hedges to be the same shape, but their internal branching structures are very, very different. And uh, maybe, you know, so in some sense, it doesn't really matter what's going on inside as long as you can train it to give you the behaviors that you want. And I interpret the Google claims as about that. Um, now we know what the thing, how it works, and what it's going to, how it's going to, what outputs is going to give us given these inputs. So this is uh, is interesting theorizing, but I'm enjoying know. you being a behaviorist right now. What can you continue doing <laughs> that for another minute? So um, and, I'm not a behaviorist. Yeah. Oh, you love Quine all of a sudden. Um, but, but, <laughs> no. but so, so here's tell me what you think of the following. So so here's something that is when it happens, it it helps favor the kinds of hypotheses the connection is typically put forward uh -huh. so we pick some behavior and uh we train the uh, up the network to perform that behavior and then we get some side effect that is similar to a side effect that we we get in humans it's uh sorry it's an we get a, a unforeseen side effect yeah <laughs> oh boy well you know so one kind of example that you get with the Google thing is that uh, you, see, you see eyes everywhere in, in these so-called hallucinated or dreamt images. There's, holy crap, like one of the things that it, it imposes everywhere are uh, images of eyes. Yeah. Um, or, but that's maybe just because statistically in the things that sees eyes, there's two, always two of them. And so, you know, there's a lot of eyes and close. I mean, you could, that seems like something that could be in principle explained by regularities in the stimuli it's presented with. But it, but it seems to me that like this would be a really good thing for the, the connectionist to aim for. So it, not only that they could build something that produces the same output, but that you get side effects that are, that are similar to the, the source or the, you know, the, the target phenomenon. So, I mean, um, yeah, so what would be really impressive is if you train it to recognize 
red and blue and green and so forth and then present it with a bright red stimulus and then right after that's a white thing and it says it's green or something so it has like after image effects there you go yeah so we weren't, <laughs> we weren't training it to have after image effects we were just training it to do this classificatory thing right uh, but then it turns out that it also has uh after effects that is a really cool piece of evidence now that's not knocked down yeah uh, that doesn't prove that they, okay they're done they got the they got exactly the right architecture but that is a pretty cool point in their favor if uh, well you know, i mean there is an interesting i mean i was thinking about this recently so this is a point that actually bostrom is making in his uh one of the points he makes a lot of them but one of the points he was making in that super intelligence book is whether or not artificial intelligence needs to be produced in this in a way that's the same as the way human beings do it so in this comparison was flight uh, one of the comparisons is flight so we wanted to learn how to fly birds do it by flapping their wings and you know early there's always those comical things about the flapping first people who tried to flap and it failed miserably and now we have fixed wing pr propulsion systems and the way we manage to fly is a way completely different than the way bird i mean not completely different but based on similar principles but it's not the flapping method and so you might say well gee uh, in some cases, when we try to produce the things we find in nature, we we end up doing it in a way that's different than the way that nature produced it, um, in a in a kind of uniquely man-made or human-made perspective. And so, one of the things you might wonder is about about intelligence. So, do we or you know things uh, that are artificially intelligent or artificially sentient or whatever the case may be? One might wonder whether we want or need. Excuse me, not want, but need to produce something that captures all those types of things. Um, it, it's a similar to a point that Ned Block always used to make about functionalisms, you know, so there so one kind of functionalism says you want to produce things that are functionally just like us. Um, but then there are all these weird things. I, I forget the example that Ned used to use, but it's like this one about, uh, it's World War II people who have had dentistry work who go up in planes, experience a weird effect or something, was in one of his early papers. I forget, but it's like, there's a certain thing which, you would never really have predicted, but as a consequence of how we function, you get this really weird experience in these odd situations. But you might wonder, well, do you need to reproduce that in order to have the thing be intelligent or, or sentient? Now, I know that's different than what you were saying, because you were saying if you want to have evidence that the model captures what's going on in humans, you want to see this. It would be nice to see this kind of reproduction. But it also brings up this other question I think is interesting, which is, could you do it in a way that didn't do that? Like, could you really produce something that was sentience uh, um, without also producing things that had after image effects and these other weird types of things or intelligence in, in you know in general i think that's a really good point to break on <laughs> Are you on break still? Yeah, well, we could be. I don't know. Well, uh, I'm going to end the break. Okay. okay. So here we go. Uh, welcome. <laughs> welcome back from the break, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. So, what? Oh, I was saying the thing that I found more interesting. I mean, it was interesting to look at these images and go, oh, that's, it's neat. But I didn't, I mean, I guess I see what, I, I take the points that you're making. And I guess I'm not as uh, in love with the. One of these days we'll have to get Alex on here because he defends that neural net stuff. Yeah, let's do it. I got um, I got a bunch of questions for him. Yeah, I'm, exactly. I'm confident he could understand that he could explain a lot better than the Google people because he. I was on his prospectus committee, you know, and he did a good job explaining that stuff. And uh, yeah, well, he's so a he's got a lot to say about it. He's got his feet in both sides, and those are my favorite people—people people that can talk philosophy and science. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, but the thing that I thought, and also related back to Alex, the thing that I thought was much more interesting was the uh, artificial intelligence that discovered or reverse engineered the way those flatworms divide and self. Yeah. Whatever. That, 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 that was a really, really cool thing, I thought. That was, in fact, mind-blowing. If you think about it, producing a novel scientific theory, I mean, that's, you know, forget about whether it understands what it did, just the fact that it was able to come up with what we would term an explanation, <laughs> which no one has come yeah. up with. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, one of, my, one of my big topics in philosophy that I'm really interested in, like so interested in that I probably won't ever write anything about it. I'll just uh -huh. think about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I care so much I wouldn't want to fuck things up by publishing it. <laughs> okay. Where, you know, consciousness, I'll write a million articles about consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but explanation, like what is an explanation? Yeah. So much of science and maybe even knowledge more generally, I think, has a lot to do with explanation. But sometimes I wonder whether that's actually true. Yeah. Like, sometimes I wonder if um, the feeling of understanding something that we seek when we seek explanations is just useless. It, do it doesn't matter. As long as you can get the predictions. Right. Uh, as long as you got some kind of equation that will, you know, take uh, the data and then uh, tell you what the the future data are going to be, good enough, man. You don't need anything deeper than that. You don't need to have a clear and distinct idea of exactly, you know, how it got that way. You know, and this gets into all sorts of stuff about like, is physics finished yet? Is there, you know, do we still need a deeper explanation? Uh -huh. Is there an explanatory gap when it comes to consciousness? Blah blah blah. With the planarian thing, so what do we have? We 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 came up with something that is able to. I mean, to what degree is it really an explanation? And I I, I must say I haven't really read the article. I just saw the uh, the blog post. Is your sense that like after? Well, it provides a model for how it's accomplished. That's that's what what it did, or like that's what they're claiming that it did. But um, like you, I, I didn't slog through all the details of every a nook and cranny of it. But uh, what they're claiming that it did is actually provide a model by so uh, a mechanism through how how it works. Well, mo model is a funny sort of word, you know, like uh, Newton's <laughs> Newton's law of gravitation. Is that a model of how gravitation works, or is that just like some numbers where you know you plug in you plug in some numbers, you get some numbers out. It's a model. That's what a model is in the most basic sense. In the scientific literature, right? Just a way to... Uh, I don't know if scientists know what the hell they're talking about. But what do you mean by model? If someone what I mean is that it, 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 it proposed a mechanism. Okay, so that's more than just an equation. So you take, take like the ideal gas laws. Yeah, uh, ideal gas laws will, will tell you the numerical relationships between pressure and uh, temperature and volume. Uh, yeah. Um, but you, you could... You can know that about gases without knowing whether gases are made out of atoms or are a perfectly continuous fluid. Yeah. Someone comes along and says, well, it's not a perfectly continuous fluid. It's uh, a bunch of atoms. Uh -huh. And they can now do things like reduce pressure to uh, the cumulative uh, effect of the velocities and masses mm -hmm. of the particles against the sides of the, the container. I, I, per, I, Pete Mandic, I would call that a mechanistic model. We have more than just an equation. That Say that last part again. What's the mechanistic model? Oh, the, 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 the situation where we know more than just the ideal gas laws. We know oh, that okay. gases are made out of molecules and right, molecules right. of masses and velocities. And, and that gives us uh, a mechanistic explanation of pressure and temperature. Right. Yeah. So I, I, well, yeah. So I, I think that you can use model for both of those things. But one, they're yeah. modeling different things. One's modeling a relationship. And that's why you can abstract away from maybe how, how the things are instantiated because you're talking about just a general relationship between pressure and volume and temperature. Um, and that's what the model is, is, is talking about. It's not trying to uh, model the way it works, but merely the, the relationship that's holds between these things. Yeah. The same is true with like Newtonian laws, with, or excuse me, with least the laws of gravitation, as, as uh, I understand Newtonian laws. They're, they're models of a certain relationship. How, I mean, that was the whole point of the known Fiango. <laughs> well, what I want, let's Move call it mechanisms or mechanistic yeah. explanations. That's what I'm yeah. looking for. As a I, I mean, I, I think that's what they are proposing that we got from the flatworm. Although, I don't know. I, again, okay. I, I had to go look again. But uh, That is really cool. Yeah. That was the cool thing about it. Well, what we should do is get that uh, computer program to explain us how uh, the Google network works. Well, it, no. 
I mean, <laughs> I don't think that's exactly how it works, but you probably could design something to do that. I mean, uh, I don't think it's going, it's too far fetched of an idea to say that um, we can hopefully expect some questions that have been very hard for us to answer, be answered, be answered more successfully by uh, these kinds of agents. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, artificial uh, theory, uh, I mean, automatic theorem proving things are already out there. Yeah. People use them, people trust them. That's the first step. So, I mean, I, I'm not that, I wouldn't be that surprised if, if, if we could get scientific advances, which are truly fundamental from, from something like this. Although, you know, I, I don't think there's any sense in which it understands what it did or um, knows what's going on. It's just uh, can research through trees really quickly and eliminate possibilities in a really efficient manner. But I mean, that's just my view, you know. But. The, well, you know, the more these machines do that sort of thing without mm -hmm. settling whether they understand it or not, the less anyone's going to care whether they understand it. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, it, to that extent, I think I'm, I'm a behaviorist enough that the Aquinian enough to think, yeah, it, it doesn't really matter whether the thing knows what it's doing. If it acts in the world, we have, we have issues. When thinking about terminators and super intelligences and artificial intelligence and all that, that to me is, is one of the big issues is yes, the, the philosophy, the philosophy is interesting. And does it pass the Turing test is, does it therefore understand or not? There's an interesting question, but if it can pass the Turing test, then it already is acting in the world in a way that, um, that means we need to think about it or at least take an intentional stance towards it. And then, you know, uh, for, for, for practical purposes, you know, one, one kind of critique of cognitive science that, that I'm kind of interested in is not so much the Searle stuff about like, well, does it really understand uh, Chinese or whatever, but yeah. it's the stuff that comes out of Jerry Fodor's, the mind doesn't work that way uh -huh. uh, stuff. A ancient, ancient stuff, right? People still think about that I'm stuff. I'm still living in the 90s, my friend. <laughs> yeah, <okay>. uh, cool. <laughs> That's yes. Grunge forever. Wow. Um, <laughs> okay. So are you familiar with that stuff? There's, there's like these... If I say the word modularity, does that have anything to do with it? It's about how, how much of the mind is not modular. So yeah. Florida makes these claims about like what cognition that is in central systems, the non-modular systems. Yeah. Uh, that kind of cognition has these, this like ISO... He's got these weird, this weird vocabulary to describe it. It's like mega holistic, ultra holistic. And, and yeah. I'm kind of wondering if people who are up on that, uh, what they would say about this planaria hypothesis, uh, the automatic, it's a form of abduction that it's doing, right? It, it came up with, uh, I mean, it's doing ampliative reasoning. I'm wondering if it, if it scores any points against the, the Fedorians. Huh. So I don't know, but I mean, yeah. Uh, it's a good question. To be honest, I'm not sure. And you know what? That's a part of that stuff I always kind of ignored, to be honest. I never really thought much about that uh, central cognition and modularity. To me, it really gets boring when you start. By the time you finish figuring out what a module is, it's, like, yeah. it's so it doesn't know enough. I mean, it can mean anything and people mean different things by it. And I guess it's kind of interesting figuring out whether there's uh, I mean, I guess what to me is uh, the problem with all that stuff is it descends to boxology very quickly. And I, maybe this is my personal ignorance, but I don't see it connecting up to anything empirical that you can test. Oh, the modularity uh, debates, like about yeah. whether blah, blah, blah is, happens in a module or not. Yeah, exactly. I'm with you on that. Uh, well, and, and so I think that Ned is, and, and um, you know, he recently taught this, uh, co-taught this course with uh, the CUNY guy. I'm blanking on his name now, but, uh, oh gosh. <laughs> uh, the CUNY guy. <laughs> yeah. You know, he, he taught the course with, he's always talking about inference and uh, association and so forth. Oh, I don't, God, I, I know, I feel like an idiot now. But anyway, um, so one of the things that they wanted to do in that class, though, was sort of explore the evidence for or against issues about modularity and whether or not, say, perceptual systems are modular and in what sense they might be and so forth and so on and what it might mean to make an inference. And I mean, so all that stuff's interesting and it gets into really interesting questions about the philosophy of psychology. but. Uh, not so one so one of the things that i think people were saying that you might take as evidence for a certain area being modular is that it has its own kind of logic or way of dealing with things so that ned was trying to present evidence that the way the sensory systems work is just different than the way the cognitive systems work they 
that are subject to different kinds of a uh, that you get, um, you know, one of the examples like pop out effect. So there doesn't seem to be anything like that um, in a in a cognitive or a conceptual setup. But that seems to be something that's kind of distinctive of the way that sensory systems work. And there are other things too, like um, you know, kinds of attention and stuff like yeah. that. So I'm not saying I agree with that, but I, I think at least they're trying to. Th and that's one of the things I've always liked about the word that the work that Ned does is he's trying to think of how do you empirically test these kinds of claims instead right. of just draw boxes. And make right. and make claims about you know I mean I always think of the photo stuff as just a lot of table pounding and then de definitions which he doesn't believe in anyway so <laughs> <laughs> if you're if you're an analytic philosopher what else are you gonna do I mean I don't know I think of myself as an analytic philosopher I I, I read some science and try to think of how how you might test these things yeah well that's what scientists do is figure out how to test things but analytic philosophers they on some level care about definitions even if they uh, claim that there's no such thing as definitions yeah well they care about at least being clear enough about your use of terms to try to see what implies what or where what things lead to what so i mean and that is i i think you know uh you know jerry's work has been very influential in that respect but yeah. i just don't know enough about the arguments for why this thing is supposed to be so non-modular uh i'm not sure you yeah know? and and to me the neuroanatomy is much more interesting than the sort of Start starting at the top and thinking about how you box everything out and then going down, I guess, is is one way to do it. But I, I don't know. I, it just doesn't seem to me to be that interesting. So that's just, you know, sadly, my deficit. Yeah. There's plenty of other things to argue with, with Footer about <laughs> than modules. <laughs> well, one thing that you might think, and I'm torn about this, is that, you know, it, it, to go back to something you were saying, like, right, right before the break in connection with Bostrom, you know, there's yeah. this general kind of question as cognitive scientists that we might be interested in is you know, how much do we care about folk categories or, or you know, folk theory? So you talk about sentience or sapience, like you wanna know about thinking, how does thinking occur? The folk have a certain amount of theory about that, and you might wonder how much you have to have in order to do uh, some science that's worth doing. You know, so I, I go and I build a network or I have a, uh, just have a computer program that can either you know classify images or it could come up with an explanation for a planaria folding or unfolding. How much does that thing have to respect folk theory before it's it's worth saying like, oh, guess what? It did a perceptual discrimination, or guess what? It thinks or it forms a hypothesis or yeah. it uh, has abduced an explanation. I don't think it has. I mean, I don't. To me, I think that's kind of uh, the kind of question which is going to be answered simply by results. So, I mean, in in a sense, is what we were talking about before. If you build the thing and it acts in the world in a way that's convincing, then yeah. that's the that's it. Uh -huh. The rest of it is, uh, you know, the reason why people aren't. To me, it seems to me that the reason why people aren't impressed by all this other kind of stuff in advanced, uh, excuse me, in AI, is because it's highly domain specific and highly circumscribed. So yeah, you get interesting results, but they don't generalize in anything like the way that human problem solving what we think of as real intelligence does. So you can build a really good chess playing program and it can master chess, but it can't vacuum the floor. <laughs> and you can build a really good vacuum machine that can navigate your house and not bump into things and not kill the cat, but it can't play chess. And so I think once that's, and I, you know, maybe it'll, maybe it'll never be overcome, but I do think it's at least, you know, possible that they could combine these various things in certain ways that give you something which produces behavior, which is, you know, go, you know, across. And one way of doing is thinking modules, like you're saying, of got the chess playing module in this, and there's maybe something to access and who knows, you know, but maybe it won't work, but I can see a possibility there. Once you get something that does that, I think people are going to be much more, you know, if there really were a, a commander data type AI, which there has, there's nothing even like that, nothing even close. But if there were, then I think people would be much more relaxed about saying it thinks and so forth and so on and has a hypothesis and, and whether it respects folk psychology, I think would just become kind of secondary. But um, aren't you kind of saying that it does have to respect folk psychology? And here's where why? I'm coming from. Well, so, it has to be able to interact with us in a, in a meaningful way, but that you don't have to. Why? So, so, so let's take a, a, a. Well, you said, how will we can be convinced, or like, what will it take for us to think of it as having these things? Let me try this on you. So, I claim that a, a chess playing machine thinks about chess. Yeah. Even though it can't vacuum or think about vacuuming, it can't right. think about. And then you say, look, 
if you get me a you you present me with a commander data that can play chess, uh, then I will say it thinks about chess. Yeah. But of course, like what you mean by saying a commander data is a general purpose thing, which can also do all the vacuuming, all sorts of other things as well. And you could talk to it and say, hey, why are you moving your piece that way? Yeah, but Richard, aren't aren't you just trading on some folk psychological intuition that in order to be a, a, a thinker about chess, you also have to be a thinker about all these other things? You've got some kind of holism intuition that you're getting from from folk theory. Uh -huh. No, yeah. I mean, I, well, it depends on which question you were asking at the beginning of this thing. So I thought you well, were saying. I forgot, saying, but what I'm asking now is, <laughs> can, I, can I say that um, this is thinking about chess? And what does it do? It, it plays chess. Uh huh. Can you, can you say it? I, yeah, you just did. So you can. <laughs> should, should you say it? No, of course not. That's why not? Not a good thing to say. I mean, it depends on why, why are you saying it? Do you really believe that the thing has beliefs about its moves and that it's, it's uh, reasoning in any important sense? What it's doing is searching trees. I mean, you know the, the way that this program works. It just has access to every game that's ever been played and statistically analyzes which moves have led to victory. And for every stage of the game, it's simply looking up which moves from this point have led to checkmate okay. and which moves but, haven't. And then it selects which one, I mean, so the goal has been pre-specified. Uh, it's a very, it's, there's no flexibility. It's just a huge lookup table. There's, the thing that makes it work is that it's got access to a huge amount of data and it can search through that data in a really efficient and, and, and quick way. But nowhere in there do you have to talk about thinking in order to describe its behaviors and so you know or representing or, or any of those nothing about the way the system is set up necessitates that you appeal to psychological concepts in order to explain what it's doing so you know, it now which psychological concepts well you know I don't know uh, is memory a psychological concept or a computer science concept I, that's I think an interesting question and maybe that's what you're trading on yeah the computer has memory and in some sense, memory is in a computer is modeled on, or in some sense instantiates our theory about how memory might work, yeah. which is that it's you know encoded in a format and stored in a certain representational way. So you know, in that extended sense, you know, this may be the Searle stuff. So in the in the extended sense of intentionality, I think yeah, it it is embodying a kind of. Uh, thinking that we have that really is kind of something like a what we would do <laughs> we've made it do <laughs> and so in the same way that words on paper get meanings because of our doings maybe something like that yeah. is going on there so yeah i would be okay saying thinking in some limited limited sense but if you really mean thinking in the sense of it having contents that are somehow not merely written down by us into it, then I, I don't think, no, I don't think so. I think that you're modeling a process and that the process resembles something that's cognitive, but it doesn't seem like there's any good re real reason, except for, you know, you could say behaviorally, unless you're a behaviorist. Behaviorally-wise, it produces behavior that's similar to people who think. So I'm hearing you say a lot of things that would seem to put you back on the side, or I don't know about back, but it would put you on the side of Fodor. So, uh -huh. so earlier you were saying, like, look, all this... Fedorian, um, well, what top I said level box yeah. drawing. Like, we don't need to do that. Let's just hit the ground uh, running doing empirical science. And, um, and well, so I'm trying to make a case for what I see a, a, a role of like armchair of philosophy of cognitive science yeah. can be. And, and, and that is the, the sort of thing that you're saying. Like, well, let's think about like what we would consider thinking about chess. What would we, from the point of view of folk psychologists, what would we regard? as understanding the chess move and what we wouldn't regard as simply looking up the answer in some database. So therefore, uh, because it doesn't respect those folk psychological criteria on the concept of thinking, it's not a thinker. So uh -huh. that's the sort of thing. You, you are a Fedorian philosopher of cognitive science, after all. Uh-huh. That we, you got to you got to get clear on the see but you started with one question then tricked me into talking about that and now we're <laughs> a different conclusion because you were asking me what would it take for us to think of it as a thinker or what would when would we say that the thing thinks or not so of course that's a question about us and what we would say and then i think that you, you what you need is the right behavior uh, we we say of things that behave in the right way that they think so what's the other uh, question 
The other question is, does it really think or not? Oh. So I was talking about when would we eventually come to say that the thing thinks? Uh, like norm, when would when would a cognitive scientist say this thing is thinking? And then, of course, I say the answer to that question is well, it was got to have some flexible behaviors, uh, which are more than being good at chess. And but all and but somehow combining like walking around and doing stuff and acting like what we would take as a thinker, then we would say quite easily and automatically, oh, that's the thing that thing thinks. So that's I, I was making a claim about that. Now and then you were saying, aha, so you really believe that in order to be a thinker, therefore. And, and that I wasn't saying. Um, I think <laughs> this might be a big philosophical difference between the two of us, but I don't really see a difference between those two questions. Uh huh. Well, I yeah, that is a big difference. I mean, so for me, thinking is is an experience. So re when there's thinking, there's an ex there's experiencing going on, and when there's experiencing going on, there's consciousness going on. And uh, so it, you, you don't get thinking without having feelings, like feelings of understanding or feelings of entertaining or feelings of doubt and wonder or being certain. And those things can be accompanied by representational contents and so forth and so on. And often we have feelings about representational contents and so forth and so on. But I, I don't think that merely instantiating representational contents is thinking because it, it doesn't, I don't see it having the, uh, the feeling now is that a folk psychological thing I don't know I think that's just a a uh, it may be folk psychological uh, theoretical claim but I don't think that me being conscious is a theoretical claim uh, no, I mean I think me having beliefs and stuff maybe is but me feeling certain about certain things that's not a theoretical. but that there's a connection between thinking and experiencing and further that these are only really ascertainable from the first person point of view that I mean what you're not just you don't, you don't claim to be just making that up or pulling that out of your ass. You would claim that that's part of folk psychology. Um, what, what are you doing? You got five minutes, uh, by the way. What's your meta? Is it part of folk psychology? Um, the thinking is an experience. Is, is, it part of, is it part of folk physics that the external world exists? I mean, is that part of folk physics? That there's an external world. I mean, I, I, that's the kind of issue I'm having here. Yeah, I guess is it a theoretical claim on the part of the average person that there are objects that aren't that aren't merely dreamlike or something? I mean, I don't know. That seems like a weird thing to say to me. Uh, it's, it seems like a justified belief that we have, and I can think of all kinds of justifications for it. But is it a is it a do I want to call it a theoretical? I mean, yeah, if you're Quining, you think everything's theory. But I mean, in the ordinary sense of the word theory, is it a is that like a folk theoretical claim? Because I think consciousness is like that. It's more of a datum. It's a starting point. It's something that you have. You don't need to theorize that you have it. And so. But it's also, it's a datum that that's what thinking is. The thinking is related to experience and consciousness. Um, and is it an entailment of that, that you can't have unconscious thoughts? Uh, five minutes, huh? Um, you, you, have to, <laughs> you have to be very careful here because I, you know, I was having this discussion with Sam Coleman. You know who he is? He's a cool guy, but uh, uh, yeah, I met him. I've only talked to him briefly. We met at uh, in Arizona. The, yeah, he came and gave a talk at the, at the Cogsite thing, and I guess now he's going to be in this Taiwan thing uh, that I'm going to. But anyway, so it gets tricky because yeah, I believe that there are unconscious, unconscious mental states. And, uh, you know, I'm fine calling them mental psychological states, but I don't believe that they have, that there's anything that it's like for them to be there. Uh, at, so they, they lack, when they're unconscious, they, they don't have any what is likeness or characteristic feelings or whatnot. They're, li they're literally unconscious. Or they may have behavioral functional stuff or whatever. So, but the reason that you would call them mental is because of their connection to conscious states, I would say. Um, because. Uh, I mean, in some, yeah, I'm perfectly fine saying that there's some unconscious thinking going on there, but uh, it's only because, you know, it could be conscious that you would call it thinking, that there could be something that it's like to have that train of thought. But that might just be an expression of a kind of Ramsey sentence functionalism, whereby you've got this state and it's in virtue of uh, bearing <laughs> a bunch of causal relations to a bunch of other kinds of states that it's the state that it is. Yeah. If there are conscious states, it's going to turn out that like, Conscious states are going to figure into these definitions of other states. Yeah, um, but that that's that's different from say a Cartesian claim that would make all mental states conscious, or a Surlian claim that would make some kind of special uh, connection 
uh, criterial on being conscious. It's just saying like, well, I, look, think yeah, I think I'm on the special connection page. Special connection page. You're not a mere Ramsey sentence functionalist. I, I, I don't believe that functionalism could possibly be true about the mind. So yeah, I, I would hate to find out that I was a functionalist. <laughs> you know, what, I think, what I think is that functionalism is a very, gives a very good description of, you know, things that conscious states do and then they're, they're when they're unconscious, they do stuff, but that we call them, I mean, you know, if you, if, if, if it were a, a rock in your head doing the same thing, you wouldn't call that rock. I wouldn't call that rock a, a mental state anymore. It's uh, because if it's not connected to consciousness in the right way, mm -hmm. and by virtue of which I mean that it could become conscious or appear in consciousness or something like that. Well, uh, by the way, you claimed earlier that there's two different kinds of questions. One is a question of what something really is, and the other yeah. is a question of what we would call it. Right. Yeah, so I'm, so I'm trying to talk about what the question of what it really is. So I think that we start from the inside, um, as we must do with everything, we start from the inside. I don't really understand. I guess this is what you were talking about with David Parapolitik last week. I assume yeah. that there was some echoes floating back and forth between the two of you over these kinds of issues. Because I, I know that yeah. you guys both have this like, radical third-person perspective, and you want to, you know, anyone, I mean, who thinks that 30 seconds. a distinctive first-person access to things is, is thereby committed to some kind of dualism or spookiness. Um, and that just seems to me, you know, that's a question-begging argument. Um, I, I don't see any reason to believe that that's true. Lots of people who are dualists have started from the, the claim that there is kind of ep epistemic uh, um, properties that consciousness have, which are unique or special or something. I also tend to think that there are epistemic properties which, t which at least make consciousness appear to be special or something that's interesting. Um, then what you do after that's a, di a, a different question, but I, I certainly wouldn't want to be someone who says, oh, I must avoid dualism at all costs, therefore I deny something obvious about the thing I'm trying to explain, like that it appears to have these special epistemic properties. So, you know, I, if you characterize the phenomenon and then that leads you by argument to rejecting physicalism, then so much the worse for phys physicalism. I tend to think you can characterize it in the same way and not reject physicalism. That doesn't mean it's true. I just think that there's a logically consistent view which, which takes consciousness, at, at least as many people have found it, at face value and then still incorporates it into the physical world in a respectable kind of way. So uh, I would resent, I mean, not resent, but I would you know, argue against the idea that, ah, if you say the things I'm saying, then you're, you're already halfway to dualism. I just don't believe that's true. I think some things you start with and then you build theories about them. And one thing we start with is that from the inside, we have this kind of what appears to be interesting thing going on. Uh, which seems, at least at first glance, importantly different from the kind of things you're talking about. Well, that's what you're wrong about, but we are out of time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm open to being wrong, you know. Um, next time, we'll have to talk about why we think physicalism is so true. You know, I was reading this paper by David Papineau. Have you ever read his paper called The Rise of Physicalism? No. Um, and then he wrote this other paper called uh, Physicalism and Naturalism and um, Conservation of Energy. I don't know, something like that. So it's interesting, it's an interesting, uh, because a lot of people who aren't physicalists will say that it's only the zeitgeist of our time, it's a fad, um, there's no good arguments for physicalism, it's simply, you know, we assume it and then say poo-poo to everyone else. So it is an interesting question, what are the actual arguments for physicalism and how convincing are they? Yeah. I'm not talking about arguments against it, I'm not talking about zombies, right, right. I mean, that's interesting stuff, but that's a separate set of issues. I mean, what are the positive reasons for believing that physicalism is true that don't simply amount to saying dualism? Right. That's a really good question. <laughs> well, we should, why don't we tackle that next time uh, the two of us talk? I am off to go adopt a cat. Oh, cool. Yeah, I saw pictures of, on Facebook of the cat. I thought it had previously already been adopted. Well, we did the uh, paperwork part. The spiritual yeah. adoption has already taken place. Get, get that cat. The mental adoption. Now we got to do the physical adoption. Physically adopt the cat. <laughs> well, this was a super good uh, session, man. We rocked it. Yeah, I didn't even get to talk about this uh, paper I'm writing from this big presentation I'm doing in Taiwan, which maybe yeah. we'll talk about next time. I mean, barely interesting, but, you know, I got to talk about it to someone. So. <laughs> I'll listen to you. All right, man, good to talk to you, and I'll later, talk to later. you later. Peace.
Bye. Bye. 